0: promise the stool is not part of the sermon this morning. For those of you that were here last year, just ask somebody. Uh, It's an inside joke at this point. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Those of you who are in the room, those of you who are online and certainly Town, love you all. Uh, So thankful for all of you. Thankful for all of you. It is a privilege to be here. I'm Nate Lott. I serve here. I have the privilege to serve here as one of the pastors on staff. I serve as the Myerstown campus pastor, and I serve over small groups at both campuses. And so it's an incredible privilege uh, to be with you this morning and preach God's Word. If I pull a tissue out of my back pocket, it's just been that kind of morning already. Amen? Uh, so just wanted to warn you about that. While you uh, have your Bibles, you should open to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read God's Word for us this morning as we get the morning going. Luke chapter 9. Starting in verse 18, it says this. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, Christ. The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Angels, this is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. God, may we grab a hold of it as it's, as it says it's living and breathing, Lord. May we come to it as it is, Lord, and may it change us, God. Lord, we come to your word anticipating that very fact to be changed by something that is living and breathing. So would you draw us to it? And Lord, may the words of my mouth ring true. This morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here we go. Here we go. Week five in our series called Sent. Sent. That word, should you should be hearing that word in your sleep by now. Sent. We are sent. And what has been our goal? Our goal has been this, to learn that we are sent by Jesus, to live a sent life for Jesus. Amen? So essentially, if I could sum up the series' big idea in my own words, it would be this. Everyone, you included, myself included, who has experienced the love of Christ, who's been transformed by Christ, who's been redeemed by Christ, has been sent by Christ to share the message of the gospel. That's what it means to be sent. And so each week, we've dug into what it means to live a sent life to the glory of God. You see, a relationship with Jesus means that we understand, first and foremost, that we are most loved by God, which compels us to live sent, essentially on mission for Jesus. So how's that going? How are you doing with that? Have you been praying for people in your life by name? Has the Lord given you open-door opportunities with ripe bananas? people that are curious, people that have questions. I've been praying for that in your life. I've been praying for that in my life. I've been praying for the boldness and the clarity to be able to speak up, to be able to share. Sometimes it just means praying for people. So how's that going for you? How's that going? See, if the stats that we learned a few weeks ago are true, You know, you remember them. Uh, Americans now associating with Christianity is on the decline. Church membership is declining. Christians willing to even have spiritual conversations is declining. Church, we have work to do. Amen? We have work to do. But listen, we are not just trying to fix the stats. We're not just trying to sway the numbers. We're trying to see people come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, this is not a... Well, let's just let someone else pick up the ball kind of mission. This is an all-hands-on-deck, share-the-plow-get-our-hands-dirty-together kind of effort. And so the work, the work before us today is realizing that being a disciple means that we live out the gospel and carry our cross. That is sent. That's what it means to be sent. Live out the gospel, carry your cross. Church, Jesus has sent us. He told the disciples in John 20, 21, as the Father sends me, so I send you. That's where we get the word. That's where we get the idea. That's where we get the charge to live sent. And so in this series, we find ourselves digging into Luke chapter 9. Back in week one, Pastor Jerry taught us what it means to be sent to serve Christ. I love the idea that we have, we have power and authority. There's no place where we will go and no person where we will meet, who we will meet that we don't have the authority and the power to share the gospel with. Amen? You have power and authority to share the gospel with anyone, anytime, anywhere. That's incredibly encouraging. And in week two, we learned that we are sent to seek the call. The mission compels us to stay faithful and focused. I love what Pastor Ed said. He said, to live sent, we must fully depend on God. If you're going to have that kind of power and authority and, and live your life as such, you're going to have to depend on the Lord. And then week three, we came back to learn that we are sent to show the curious. Pastor Nate Newell stole Pastor Ed's bananas and came back and taught us that we have access to the answers to the curious, but we need to be informed and intentional. Be informed and intentional with people in our lives. And then last week, Pastor Jared did a fantastic job of teaching us how to serve the crowd. Jesus and his disciples served the crowd. Church, we will get opportunities. If you've been saved by Jesus, you're on mission for Jesus, you will get opportunities. You will. You will be given opportunities. And so the goal is to stay ready and resourceful. Why? Because God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. And so today, today, week five, we, we find ourselves sent. Sent to stand for Christ. What does it mean to stand for Christ? Today, today, Jesus is after, guess what? Your heart. The heart of the messenger. That's what Jesus wants to change today. The heart of Of the messenger? What does it mean to stand for Christ? Jesus is going to say some pretty significant things today. Jesus is going to say, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Verse 23. And who the disciples, who we say Jesus is, will change how we live our lives. That's the message today. Who you say Jesus is will have significant impact in your life. It should. Before we unpack the text, I'm curious. I'm curious to ask a quick question. Who loves icebreaker questions? Anybody? Anybody weird like me? Like icebreaker questions? No, I'm the only one in the room. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. That's awesome. I mean, we don't typically begin a sermon with an icebreaker question because that would be weird, right? But hey, I like weird. I like weird. I'm the kind of person who likes weird. If you've been in a in small group with me or a class that I've led, you know that I love icebreaker questions. You know, it could be the easy kind, though, that, like, like which superhero superpower would you want? But that's basic, in my opinion. I like the more complex that draws out your personality a little bit. Like, Tim, Tim, if you were, if you were to head to a deserted island for the rest of your life, what un- limited, uh, unlimited supply of snacks and what TV series are you taking with you to live out the rest of your days? Man, if you, the answer to that question is going to tell a whole lot about your personality. <laughs> you have time to think about it. I'll, we'll connect at the end. But those types of questions are fun. People laugh just like you did. Why? Because it it, it draws people in. It it levels out the room a little bit. Why? Because these types of questions are just, they're they're non-consequential, right? And they're meant to be so. They're meant to be non-consequential. And if handled well, it can be the perfect segue needed to land a group of people in a more serious discussion on a more serious topic, right? That's the goal. That's the goal. The goal is to draw you in, to to draw you out, and to, to let the air out of the room a little bit to land on a more serious topic. Friends, this is exactly what we find Jesus doing as we unpack the text. This is exactly what we find Jesus doing. Jesus asks a very non-consequential question to pave the way for a very consequential one. Jesus will ask his disciples the greatest question ever asked. See, as the height of their training comes to a tipping point in our text the tone takes a bit of a change. Up till now, Jesus has been focusing on teaching them broad things and taking them to places and and navigating specific things. But today, today the crowds are gone. The short-term trip is over and he has them alone. The teaching quickly goes from the broad to the specific. See, Jesus in this moment, Jesus is targeting their heart. He's after their heart today. In this moment, Jesus will ask a very clear, a very important, and a very life-changing question. Friends, this question is the question. This question is the question. Have you ever been asked this question? Who is Jesus? Or... Have you ever asked anyone the question? Has the Lord ever given you the opportunity to ask someone, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? You know, in my research, I was stunned to find countless articles, books, publications, magazines, such as this book right here, all trying to answer and surface an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus. It's fascinating to me that it seems like every Easter or every major world event, it seems like publications just like this one are trying to find answers to the question of who Jesus is, and they write these books super thick trying to answer the question, and really the answer is right here. I don't know if it is that they don't like what they find in here, or they're trying to find an answer themselves, but they're all trying to find the answer to who is Jesus, We're going to learn from the mouth of the Apostle Peter today who exactly he is. What we are looking for, though, isn't in an ordinary booklet or a magazine. See, the answer to the question is not in popular opinion, it's not in the voice of the crowds, it's not even in the looming curiosity of those looking in. Friends, Jesus is the Christ of God. That's the answer. Jesus is the Christ. If you truly desire to serve Jesus, seek the called, show the curious, serve the crowds, you need to know who he is and stand with and for him. Jesus, the Christ of God. And so today our big idea is simply this. Standing for Christ results from a bold confession and bold clarity that lead to a bold commitment. We should have a clear testimony of this. We should have a clear testimony of who Jesus is, what he has done in our lives, and we must stand firmly upon that foundation as we seek to live sent. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is firm footing, friends. There is nothing firmer to stand upon than the answer to the question of who is Jesus. Amen? And so today, if we're going to stand firmly upon Jesus, it's going to be because we have a bold confession and bold clarity that all lead to a bold commitment. And so point one, standing for Jesus, standing for Christ, results from a bold confession. A bold confession. Verse 18, it says this, Luke tells us, Now it happened that as he was praying alone. As the text starts off, we find Jesus praying alone. You see, prayer was a vital element in Luke's account of Jesus' life. Prayer would occur at his baptism. Prayer would occur at the call of the twelve. Prayer would occur at the confession of Peter, as we'll see today. Prayer will occur at the transfiguration, the temptation on Mount Olives, and prayer would occur at the crucifixion. Prayer is a, a big deal to Luke. Prayer is a big deal to Jesus. Prayer was vital to Jesus. And prayer would precede and forecast all the critical developments in the salvation story in Luke. And since it was vital to Jesus, it should be vital to you and to me. Prayer should be vital to you and to me. And so the question is, what, what do you pray about? When do you pray? Perhaps this, why, why do you pray? Why? Why? Jesus modeled for us a clear dependency on God, the Father, and this model should be a non-negotiable on our part. It's a non-negotiable. Jesus prayed. He modeled prayer. We should pray. Church, we need to pray. You know, for Jesus, as I read the Luke passages, I sense it was not a have to, but a get to. It wasn't a have to, but a get to. We get to pray to God and can know that He hears us. Church, this should blow your mind. It, It blows my mind that when words leave my lips to the Lord, He hears what I'm saying. We should never treat... Something as, as critical as prayer is common. It should blow our minds every time our knees hit the ground, our hands come, come together, our eyelids close, words leave our mouth, that, that, that God is listening to us. Psalm 6 9 says, The Lord has heard my plea, and the Lord accepts my prayer. This reality should do two things for us it should give us confidence and connection. It should give us confidence. The psalmist says that he heard my plea. He hears you. He hears your plea. That should give you great confidence, church, that as you go before the Lord, that he hears you. That should stir in your heart. That should give you a, just an incredible measure of confidence that he hears you. It says he heard my plea. But secondly, it, should, it gives you connection because it says he accepts them. He accepts them. You, you are connected to God through prayer, because He hears what you say, and He accepts what you have to say. He accepts your prayers. He receives them. This should give us confidence and connection. Church, the truths that we confess, the truths that we possess about Jesus are radical. They are radical. Spend any measure of time you know, doing any measure of evangelism, and you will find in our world today as it is then, as it was then, that the truths about Jesus are radical. They are life shaping, they are life altering. And as Christians, what we hold in our hearts and our heads is the greatest of truths. It's the greatest of truths. And so what does that mean? Prayer. Prayer should keep us connected and confident of these things. Prayer keeps us confident and connected to the things that we confess. Prayer gives us strength to stand for Christ. The text goes on to say that while he was praying, the disciples were with him. So now we have an account that we also find in Mark chapter 8 and Matthew 16. You can read it on your own, but all three Gospels share the exact same account. Each Gospel would give us some different details as to what's going on in this account, but all talking about the same situation. But Luke here desires to emphasize the prayer aspect of this encounter. I believe the reason, though, is to highlight the significance of prayer and to model where our strength comes from, to model where Jesus' strength came from at times. He's praying. We find Jesus praying. It's a model for us. So we draw our strength. We stay confident. We stay connected to the Lord through prayer. However, in all three accounts Luke 9, Mark 8, Matthew 16, the crowd is gone. Jesus is alone with his closest followers. Jesus is alone with the 12. And Jesus uses the opportunity to draw out some serious. Dialogue with them. You know, so the disciples are here now. They are undistracted. The crowd's gone. The trip's over. Now they're alone with Jesus. And a moment of truth emerges. Jesus in verse 18 says, Who who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am. And the responses would vary. But notice the list is very similar to the list in the Herod account. Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say a prophet of old. If you go back to Luke 9, verses 7 through 9, you'll find the exact same situation. So they're hearing what's going on. They're hearing what's being said. They're hearing that word is traveling. There's a murmur. But in both situations, there's a great deal of a lack of clarity that all indicates they don't truly understand who Jesus is. And much like the icebreaker question illustration in the beginning, Jesus is asking a non-consequential question but follows up with a very significantly consequential one. You see Jesus asks his first question to get to the second question. Jesus is so intentional with his disciples, isn't he? He knows exactly what they need when they need it. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am here? The you in the original language is emphatic. It literally means you. You. Like, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I don't think Jesus is is trying to poke them in the eye. I think he's being real tender here and real delicate, but very precise. Who do you say that I am? He wants them to know. Who do you say that I am? He's not asking them to to add their thoughts to the list of previous thoughts. He's not asking them if they side with one of the opinions floating around out there. He's asking them each to have an answer to the question. Who do you say I am? You know, Jesus is not teaching his disciples that a majority vote here seals the deal. Each of them, each of us must have a clear answer on who Jesus is. And it can be as simple as Peter's response. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You know, I wonder, I wonder as I've been studying this and reading this passage over and over and over again, I wonder if what Jesus was praying about, was this very encounter. I wonder if what he was praying about would be what was stirring in their hearts as he asked this question. See, Jesus knows what happens in the other side of the answer to this question and the destination that it puts you in, where you will reside as a response to the question. And so i got to believe that as I read this text and we find Jesus praying, I believe that Jesus is praying for them. You see, because the answer to this question is a personal matter. The answer to this question is a personal matter. You can never be wrong about Jesus and fully right with God. Hear me. You can never be wrong about Jesus and fully right with God. You know, I remember when I first heard the gospel and was confronted with this question myself. You see, I was in the category, we learned a couple weeks ago, we learned that there was a category of people called nuns, N-O-N-E, nuns. They don't have any religious affiliation. I remember specifically, I had to do a little digging to, to remember this, but I remember when I was in the military, even uh, on, your, on your dog tags, they put a bunch of information, and one of them is your religious affiliation. And I specifically said, no affiliation. Nothing. Nothing. I wasn't Christian. I wasn't Muslim. I wasn't an atheist. I didn't know. I didn't care. When asked a question like this, I probably would have told you, I don't care. I don't have an answer to the question. It wasn't consequential in my life. It didn't mean nothing. My life was a mess, and I had bigger problems, in my opinion, than the answer to this question. My life was a mess. You know, I might have agreed with you that Jesus was a really smart dude. I mean, you can't really debate the reality that he existed. I mean, that's why these things exist right they can't argue the fact that he existed and i might have agreed with you that he probably did i don't know but that about sums it up that's where i was but the grace the grace and kindness of god i got a second chance <laughs> actually i got multiple second chances to get the answer right Listen, listen, church, evangelism is tough. It's hard. The people you're loving so well just don't seem to get it. I know, I know, but don't give up. Don't give up. Continue to find ways to be a sweet gospel aroma to them. Listen, I was difficult to be around. The gentleman who shared the gospel with me, I was rude to him. I was awful to him. And praise God, I get a text message from him him now annually asking me how I'm doing. Man, praise God for him. You know, recently he sent me a, a text asking me to send him a picture of my family. He sent me a picture of his and we don't necessarily see each other a whole lot, but as I sent him that picture, I was just reminded if it wasn't for his steadfastness, that picture might not even exist. Don't give up. God does miracles. I'm proof. I am proof that God does miracles. So here we have Peter. Peter's speaking up for the group. He's asked this question, Peter, who do you say that I am? And so Peter speaks up. You are the Christ of God. You see, the crowd would have its opinions. Herod had his curiosities, but the disciples needed to have their convictions. The disciples needed to know who he was. And Peter may be proclaiming on behalf of the group, but he's proclaiming on behalf of himself himself that you are the Christ of God. What an amazing statement, right? What an incredible statement. Jesus, you are the Christ of God. This is the first time in the gospel account that Jesus is called Messiah. And friends, I would argue that it is the most theologically significant statement in all of the gospel of Luke. And it makes sense because we find in the gospel of Luke a bit of a turn here in the narrative. See, Jesus would make his journey towards Jerusalem and and the the tone in the gospel takes a bit of a shift because where is Jesus going? Jesus is heading towards the cross. So it makes sense that now we declare that Jesus is the Christ. Christos, Messiah, simple definition just is anointed one. The promised deliverer and rescuer sent by God. That's Jesus See, friends, in this moment, what they would boldly confess would require them to live it out. It would require them to live it out. If Jesus is, in fact, the predicted Messiah, if Jesus is who they've been waiting for, if Jesus would usher in the kingdom of God, it was going to require them to lay down their lives for its cause. So, who do you say Jesus is? What does it mean that he is Messiah? What does this confession say about you? What does this confession say about me? That Jesus is the Christ. bold bold confession. It's a bold confession that Jesus is the Messiah. But if he is the Messiah, friends, this is really good news for us. This is really good news for us. This confession means that we acknowledge that we actually need a Savior and cannot save ourselves. And the eternal state of my soul, of your soul, depends on it. If you're visiting with us here, if you're watching online, those of you in Meierstein, if you're thinking to yourself, really? Really, Pastor? Really? It's, it's that significant? My, 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 my eternal destination hangs in the balance? If, if I get this answer right, yes. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is eternally significant that Jesus is your messiah so church if you've been redeemed by Christ if he is in fact your messiah this is your testimony I was but God simple You were a slave to sin. I was a slave to sin, an enemy of God, dead in our trespasses, dead in our former manner of life and unable to rescue ourselves. And the good news is that a Messiah has come. A Messiah has come and he offers a free gift of a new life, true life on his accounts through his work for his glory. That's the gospel. Is that your story? Would you be so bold to confess That here today, that Jesus is your Messiah. Church, this is the message we proclaim. This is the message we proclaim. This is the hope. We have a hope, a gospel to offer a world that is perishing. You see, if we are sent to serve Christ, offering hope is his mission. If we seek the called, the gospel will be the message. If we show the curious, what method do we have apart from Christ? And if we serve the crowds, what means do we have to offer but Jesus? And so if we stand for Christ, it will be first measured by what you and I confess. What do you and I confess, church? This is boldness. This is boldness. But this is not a puff your chest, puff your chest out and beat it kind of boldness. But this is simply a resolve. It simply means if you're boldly, if you're willing to boldly confess Jesus as Messiah, it just simply means that you are resolved. Resolved to believe that Jesus is your Messiah. Friends, I know this is hard. I know this is hard. I have been there. As a matter of fact, I've been the hard one. But I gotta ask, how else do we live sent? How else do we live sent if we're not resolved to boldly believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Boldness begins with believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Boldness is preaching the gospel to yourself regularly first, believing it, and then marching back into people's lives and loving them so well. That's boldness. That's what it means to be sent. So again, the text this morning, the text this morning begs the question, is Jesus your Messiah? Perhaps before you can make a bold confession, maybe you're here this morning and you just need point two, bold clarity. Perhaps you just need bold clarity. See, in verse 21, Jesus is going to respond to Peter. Jesus is going to respond to Peter's confession. And Luke tells us that that Jesus would strictly charge them. Essentially what this word in the original language means is a strong military-style command. He would strictly charge them to tell this to no one. And the tone is, is Jesus really wants this to be followed. Wait a minute. What's going on here? I mean... This series is called Sent. We're learning about all about how we all are to live sent and live out and communicate the gospel, to tell the world around us that Jesus is the Messiah. And the disciples just had an incredible experience, and now they finally confess the, the answer to the question. And you mean to tell me Jesus is telling his disciples not to tell anyone? Yes. You can uh, imagine the the, the awkward silence, right? Like, I'm imagining crickets. I would make a cricket noise for you, but it would be super weird. Uh, But I'm I'm imagining crickets. I mean, Peter confesses the answer to the question, and he finally gets it right. You know, I, I kind of relate to Peter as I learn more about him and as I read through the Gospels over and over again. I kind of I kind of really relate to Peter. Uh, Peter and I, I believe, would have a lot of things similar. And I know how I would be behaving right now if I got the answer right. I'd be like, right? Like, yes, yes. This question has been asked multiple times in the book of Luke. We learned a couple weeks ago that... Uh, It's been asked over and over and over again, and now we finally have the answer. We finally have the answer. So why is Jesus so strong about this? What would make him say, tell this to no one, and strictly charge them? Strictly charge, tell this to no one. Well, I would suggest to you, and commentators agree, that there was a huge lack of clarity on their part. There was a huge lack of clarity on their part. You see, Israel knew the, the promises. Israel knew the prophecies and the, the plan of God from a, from a general sense. But based on what Jesus says next indicates to me and to others that there is, there, there is still great confusion on their part. There's some still great confusion on their, on their part. At this point, Israel is under the dominant rule of Rome. And I don't know what you know about Rome, but Rome isn't taking applications for king. They're not taking applications for a ruler, and they're certainly not taking applications for savior. They're not even looking for one. They're busy dominating the earth, the known world at that point. You see, Israel, though, is primed. They're ready for their conquering king Messiah to come and wreck shop and establish his kingdom and their global rule. They're waiting. They're just counting, ticking down. They're, they're, they're ready to go. look at what Jesus says next, verse 22. He says, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the priests, the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. You see, Peter's confession is correct. Peter is dead on. He is correct. But if Peter and the others begin spreading this message now, Jesus would not be in Israel's crosshairs, But Rome's. You have to remember here, Jesus is still teaching them, and and their concern isn't exactly Jesus' concern. You see, their concern isn't God's timing or God's way. At this point, they're just super excited that the Messiah is here, and they just want to wreck shop and go after it and put Jesus on a throne. But it's not God's timing, it's not God's way. I was studying this, I was reminded, how true is this for us? How true is this for us as we go out into the spaces and places of life to share the gospel? You know, I can remember my zeal for the Lord as a young believer in my early 20s. Uh, Looking back on it and reflecting on it, I certainly wanted my timing and my way. I was involved in people's lives just thinking to myself, just believe, what's wrong with you? Just believe. What what are you waiting for? I wanted to tell everyone they were a sinner. Emphasis on the sinner part. I had a burning desire to find theological fault in everything I read, I watched, or heard. And I wanted the clarity of Jesus to be protected and preserved as if he solely enlisted me to win the truth war. People around me, needless to say, weren't jiving with my method. Why? Because I was rude. I was just straight up rude. Was I right? Perhaps, at times. Was my zeal commendable? For sure, absolutely. I I felt invincible. I loved Jesus and I wanted everyone to love him too. But I was not adorning the gospel in a compassionate and life giving way. As I was seeking to remove obstacles in people's lives, I was actually placing more in their way. And I learned the hard way that evangelism is not beating people over the head with Jesus, but introducing him to their heart when he gives us the opportunity. That's evangelism. Listen, these disciples, these 12 Peter, they were dead on in their confession. They were dead right, but they lacked the clarity on what the Messiah came to accomplish and how it would all go down. God's timing, God's way. And so the text gives us four things that the Messiah has come to do. A few weeks ago, Pastor Nate taught us five things about who Jesus is. The text today teaches us four things about what Jesus came to do. In verse 22, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must first suffer. Isaiah 53 details, and we sung about it this morning, Isaiah 53 details for us what the suffering servant must go through, details for us what the suffering of Jesus would look like, and he uses words like despised, borne our grief, carried our sorrow, stricken, smitten, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounds, Jesus would be oppressed, afflicted, and slaughtered. Why? So he could be acquainted with any and all of your suffering and your sin. He dealt with the suffering, not for suffering's sake, but for you and for me. Jesus suffered for us, for them. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer and then be rejected. Psalm 118, the psalmist says the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders. He says the chief priests and scribes would reject him. Jesus was rejected. This literally means that Jesus would stand in the eternal courtroom of God and take your place as guilty. Jesus stands in your place. He receives the rejection for you. The Son of Man would suffer, be rejected. The Son of Man would be killed. Again, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah tells us that He, Jesus, is the Lamb led to the slaughter. Jesus died the punishment of death so you and I don't have to. He would suffer. He would be rejected. He would be killed. All for you. But praise be to God, the end of the story isn't in a death, but in a resurrection. He says, the son of man must be raised. Psalm 1610 says, you will not abandon me in Sheol or allow your holy one to see corruption. Jesus would die, but Jesus would be raised. Friends, this is the substance. This is the proof, the validation that he, in fact, is the Messiah. It would be confessed as such, and he would prove to be the Messiah, through all of the suffering, the rejection, being killed, through all of that, friends, our Savior lives. Our Savior lives. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the mission he was sent to accomplish on your behalf. And certainly in all of these things, he's fulfilling prophecy and crossing theological T's and dotting theological I's. But friends, there's so much more to it than that. There's so much more to it than that. It's so much more personal. Don't miss this today. The gospel is for you. If you're in this room, if you're online in Myerstown, listen, the gospel is for you. The gospel is for me. When Jesus calls us to repentance, he is calling us to renounce all of the sin for sure and all of the ways that you and I have tried to do his job for him. What do I mean? Listen, he is Messiah, not me. He is Messiah, not me, or anything you and I would chase after. This is the kind of bold and humble clarity we need. And certainly the question of the morning, this morning is, is Jesus your Messiah? But the second question, though, is do you have clarity? Do you have clarity? Are you resolved to believe that Jesus is your Messiah? And standing for Christ will certainly result from a bold confession and bold clarity, but all of it, all of it results in a bold commitment. Point three, a bold commitment In these section of verses, Jesus now makes a bold confession of his own and offers bold clarity as to what he means, but he would call them to a bold commitment, and he will detail that following after him will look a certain way. Following after Jesus will look a certain way. In verse 23, he tells us right out of the gate, following after me requires a cross. He's not talking about his cross. Jesus is not calling his disciples or us to his cross where his atoning work of death was accomplished. He is calling them, he's calling us to the cross of self den- self-denial. But there's more. While there may be a death, he teaches us that this is actually the path to life. This is the path to life. This is the path to true everlasting life. Friends, don't let this post-Christendom world define for you what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is not clicking a button. It's not cliche or trending now. Following Jesus is not a status symbol. In this moment, Jesus is not telling them, listen, guys, listen, follow your dreams, man. Go after it. Get after it. Go follow your hearts, follow your dreams. Go find yourself. You know, just just trust your gut instincts. You know what? You're inherently good anyway. So just go ahead, go ahead, seek happiness. Go for it. Man, verse 23, Jesus lays it on pretty thick. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See, Jesus goes to a literal cross, but calls us to a cross of our own. He dies for us so that we may die with him, but friends, it's to reap eternal life. It's to reap eternal life. It's to put to death the ideas of the things that would cause us to chase our dreams and, and f- try to find ourselves and, and think that we can you know, trust our gut instincts. It's to put to death those things that would rob us of the pathway to the cross where Jesus is. Friends, don't miss this. A cross was an instrument of death. When something was put on a cross, it died. Jesus makes it abundantly clear following after him will lead us to die in order that we may live. This is our response to the gospel. And this is incredibly difficult to swallow. I can imagine the mood in the room, if you will, among the 12 as they're hearing this from Jesus. What does this all mean? what is he asking us to do and Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that when a Christ bids a man to follow him he bids that man to come and die this is what the gospel requires friends but i wonder i wonder i wonder if this is why evangelism is so difficult i wonder if this is why evangelism is so difficult you know, I wonder at times if this very reality is why I have pulled up short in conversations sometimes with that person. I mean, I don't want to really have to tell someone. They have to, they have to die to live. See, this is both incredibly difficult and humiliating at the same time. You ever feel that way? Ever feel humiliated in conversation with someone, having to explain to them what it truly means to follow Jesus? I have. It's humiliating. Why? Because not only are we calling people to live this way, it means that my life must align with this too. My life has to look like this. So it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly humiliating to think that we would be calling people to this. But friends, this is what it looks like. And you know, I thought to myself this week as I was preparing, like, what would it look like if everything in this book would show up in my life? What would it look like if everything in this book showed up in my life? You know, I've heard it said that if we truly believe what the Bible says, if we truly believe what it offers and do not evangelize, then we are some of the most unloving people on the planet. Think about it. We know what lies ahead and we know how to get there and we know what, where hope is and to not share that is cruel. Evangelism is putting Jesus first and loving others the best we can and sharing with them the eternal hope of Jesus Christ. And Can you feel this moment? Can you feel like the, the air in the room just gets as he's telling the disciples pick up your cross. Follow after me. You see, Jesus has been after their hearts the whole time. Jesus has been after their hearts the whole time. He's after my heart. He's after your heart. That's where the courage and the boldness live. That's where the courage and the boldness to live out the gospel lives. Again, this is humbling, but we cannot follow Jesus and at the same time come first. We cannot follow Jesus and at the same time come first. See, the throne of our hearts demands a resident, but there's only room for one. There's only room for one. We have to say no. Put to death the desires to dethrone Jesus from the seat of king over our lives. It's gospel first. And what Jesus tells us here is that this is a daily requirement, a daily battle, daily commitment. Daily. Daily. Friends, we do not not graduate from the gospel and detach it from everyday life. This is actually the process of of allowing what we've confessed in our head make the glorious 18-inch journey into our hearts. You see, Peter's confession may tell us who Jesus is, but now Jesus is telling what we ought to do and what our lives ought to look like. we can know all about Jesus, we can have incredible theological clarity, but it takes a renewed heart to live out repentance and make the commitment to carry your cross daily. And I was convicted of this this week, that the gospel has to first change me before God is going to use me to change others. This is a sent life. This, friends, is courageous evangelism. If you're going to see the world as Jesus sees it, we need regular heart work that only Jesus can provide. So, what does this look like? What does it look like to carry the cross daily and die to self as we stand for Jesus? What does it look like? Well, the text is clear on what that looks like. First, it's going to take faith. It's going to take faith. It takes faith. What is faith? Faith is just being certain. Being certain. What is Jesus asking us to be certain of? Well, in verse 24, he's asking us to be certain that this is a matter of life and death. Be certain of that. Be certain that this is a matter of life and death. Gaining life is actually found in losing it for his sake. You see, we, you and I, are not the author, we are not the maker, the perfecter, the sustainer, we are not the savior. So, trying to play these roles in an attempt to preserve our own life is the opposite of what Jesus has in mind here. It takes faith to believe. It takes faith to be certain that Jesus is asking us to take a better way. And second, it takes humility. In verse 24, he's calling us to forfeit the world instead of forfeiting our souls. And we must regularly align ourselves with biblical values not the confused mess of the world. It takes humility. It takes humility to do that. Listen, this world wants to disciple you and me. The world wants to disciple you. But thanks be to God, so does Jesus. Amen? It takes humility to forfeit the world. It takes humility to look at things that are really enticing. It takes humility to realize that, like, we're going against the grain, against the current, living a life in a different way, being discipled by Jesus, not the world. It takes great humility. It takes faith. But third, it takes growing in our personal discipleship. In verse 26, Jesus is calling them to grow in their allegiance to him, which reduces being ashamed of him. You want to reduce your shame of Jesus? You need to grow in your allegiance for him. Grow in your love for Him, grow in your personal discipleship toward him. Grow in your understanding of who Jesus is. Grow in your confession, grow in your clarity. As you do, your, your allegiance to Him will grow and your shame of Him will be reduced. It takes faith, it takes humility. It takes growing personally, but fourth, it takes, it takes commitment. It takes commitment. Our motivation needs to be rooted in what we know about the end. Listen, in verse 26, he says, He will come again, appear, and take us home. If you know the end, if you know what's going to happen, that should give us great resolve, great confidence in our commitment to Jesus. So Jesus explains that following after Him requires a cross. Why? Because nothing in this world is worth the cost of your soul. Nothing. The world is soulless, soul-destroying, and so we must abandon it by way of the cross. Abandon it by the narrow way. Jesus would say in Matthew 7, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter, but narrow is the path that leads to life. As this text comes to a close, Jesus is teaching them, he's teaching us that forfeiting the death race of trying to secure and save your own life is the fastest way to actually gaining it. Look at Jesus' flow of thought here. He says, you want to chase your life, you're going to lose it. You want to lose your life for my sake, that's how you'll gain it. We are required to carry a cross for the reason of attaining true life and gaining our reward, the great reward, a crown. We get to share a crown with Jesus. But the path to the crown is a cross. And so, we stand for Christ. We refuse to be ashamed of Him. We refuse to be ashamed of our cross. We refuse to be ashamed of the cost of following Him. Are you kidding me? There's no better way. There's no better path to life. There's no greater life lived than the life lived in the shadow of the cross under Jesus' care I wouldn't want it any other way. And our reward, our reward is to share in the eternal riches that await us in Christ Jesus' presence and enjoy the fruit of a life changed by the gospel. Friends, this is our reward. This is our reward. Friends, the glory of the Lord will show up in your bold commitment to Christ. It will show up in your life. As you boldly commit to Jesus, as you boldly commit to stand for him, as you boldly commit to live sent and seek after people, the glory of the Lord will show up in your life. So don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of him. He's not ashamed of you. You can stand for Jesus. Why? Because he died for you. So pick up your cross and carry it for him. People are watching. People are watching. Friends, this is sent. This is sent. To seek, to show, to serve, to stand for Christ. Listen, God is calling people out of the crowds of your life and causing them to be curious. Why? So that they may receive the same reward of Jesus. That was given to you. Your stand for Jesus is a commitment that you want to share it. When you commit your life to Him, there's no greater way. When you commit your life to seeking others, there's no greater way. So when you seek them, Will you show them? Will you serve them Jesus as you stand for him? Will you commit your life commit your life to live in a certain way that adorns the gospel and does not confuse people? Today could be the day. Today, today could be the day where you commit your life to standing for Jesus. Commit your life to living sent. Perhaps it's that person in your life who is like me, who just refuses to listen to anything that you have to say. Don't give up. Love them. Care for them. Commit to standing for Jesus for them. Or perhaps you're here today and you were invited by someone and you're wrestling with what would I say to the question, who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe that he is not just the Messiah, but he's yours? If you're here today that's you, Jesus is offering to be your Messiah today. He's offering the good news of the gospel to you today. He's offering to communicate to your heart that he died in your place. He secured residence for you, and he wants to be your savior. You know, as I stated earlier, before Christ, I was once in the category called none. But now, I'm known. Why? It's because the gospel has changed everything. The gospel has changed everything. You see, when I read passages like this, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, it is by grace that I've been saved through faith. It's not a work done by me. It is a free gift of God, not a result of works that I may boast. I'm actually his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, that I should walk in them. Church, that gives me hope gives me confidence that not only was my life changed by the gospel, but that God could use me to go into someone else's life to help change them with the gospel. That's what it means to live sin. That's what it means to do courageous evangelism, believe to be resolved, to lead others to make a confession, to have clarity, to make a commitment on their own, to to change their life for the cause of the gospel. Church, we need to preach this gospel to ourselves regularly It's not old, it's not up on a shelf collecting dust. It is real, it is living, it is active, and it is drawing people to it. God is desiring to draw to himself people that will hear the gospel and believe just like you have. And this series has been all about hoping that we would stand upon our commitment to live sent. That's the call today, friends. That's the call to leave these doors and live open-handed with the gospel, ensuring that any time, anywhere, any person, if given the opportunity, we boldly share what we believe. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege to sit under your word today, God. Thank you for your grace to us in these things. God, that you would you would allow us to have a place like this to open your word and to to learn from it, to lean into it, to be changed by it, Lord, is an incredible grace. And Lord, as we think about all the things that distract us and keep us from your cross, Lord, we stand amazed at it. We marvel at it. And may it never diminish. May it ever grow. May it ever be a beautiful instrument of your grace. Lord, may we never tire from being amazed by your beauty, by your gospel, by your cross. Teach us to carry our own in commitment to you. Lord, as we sing now, may that be the cry of our hearts, that we would be in awe of your wonderful cross and the work of done for us there by you on our behalf, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.